1: Wait, what's up guys welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda and danny abdel jabbar daniel good what day sir huh? well, good, well good day to you sir <laughs> how's it going how, man uh, how is the weather in, in in puerto rico
2: uh well we're we um bracing for maybe like a tropical storm uh it's coming so we got to get this going and before uh <laughs> before um I have to like use backup power
1: <laughs> before but. powers out for like three <laughs> weeks. Right. <laughs>
2: yeah. No, I mean, I don't th- yeah, I honestly don't think it's going to be that bad at all. Probably just get a
1: little bit of rain. How has the grid improved since, uh, the last
2: time power was, was, uh,
1: you know, that's, there that's was a really a...
2: good question. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I think, um, like it's definitely gotten better. I'm noticing that it, the power doesn't go out quite as frequently here. Uh, as it used to however and it's funny that you asked me about this literally today it went out for like 30 seconds and what's funny about this and I don't know if I've said this on the show is it's not just that like oh your lights go out it's that you hear an explosion somewhere in the background like a violent explosion and then the power goes out and it's it's pretty wild um it's it's, it's very jarring and, and it's funny that You know, me and my fiance are are at this point we're used to it. (laughs) So like an explosion can happen and it doesn't phase us at all anymore.
1: Just like, oh uh well at least it's not like, oh no, there's gunshots.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I've heard that here too, but not nearly
1: as frequently as the explosions. (laughs) So something so something about um my new location, because I I don't know if I told you guys, I think you know by now, I moved from Brooklyn to Long Island and you know what's really funny when we first started podcasting i lived in manhattan and i lived right next to mount sinai hospital and um there were sirens there were ambulances on my block pretty much All the time <laughs> every 30 minutes there you could there would be an ambulance that would go down my block and we were podcasting during COVID, and during in COVID, that was like one of the epicenters of uh of COVID 19. Um, they had the makeshift hospital outside Mount Sinai outside of Mount Sinai um, it was crazy it was nonstop every 10 minutes a ambulance would go by and you would hear that in the background of the podcast
2: I think I just heard one right now
1: <laughs> so now completely out of the city when I was in Brooklyn didn't hear anything I lived in a pretty you know kind of quieter section of Brooklyn now, I'm in Long Island. I live about 15 minutes away from JFK, 15 by car with no traffic. Mm-hmm. So you see planes that are descending to, to the runway. And uh, now the new thing that will be caught in the background, and I haven't found a way to, uh, to filter this out, will be airplanes.
2: Nice. <laughs>
1: airplanes will be the new thing. And then for you, of course, it's just the sounds of everyday Puerto Rico, which well, the Puerto Rican motorcycle gangs, <laughs> which includes any anything from Puerto Rican motorcycle gangs to loudspeakers outside for a night of dancing or, so, or um, people um,
2: <laughs> people praising Jesus with really bad singing or people voices. praising
1: Jesus, really <laughs> just people praising yeah. Jesus. So now we have new things to deal with, but um, I have not set up this this place to be podcast friendly yet, unfortunately. Uh, busy with the baby, who is a treasure, by the way. Um, today he's been crying a lot, but otherwise <laughs> a treasure. But um, yeah, haven't set it up, so you might hear some reverb or whatever it's called. What happens when the yeah? Sound reverb, but we'll do it, we'll reverb? do our best
2: in post processing to fix that. Yeah,
1: we'll do it best. And by now, anyone who's a frequent listener knows that consistent audio is uh, always in you know something that we try to do well but you know let's not pretend like we're, <laughs> we're the most consistent in terms of audio but thank you for being with us today um, I hope all's well with everyone and you're doing uh, you're enjoying the beginning of your summer um, Danny you're leading today's episode so what do you want to talk about
2: yeah um, I, I want to start just by asking kind of a like a generic question. Um, what are your general thoughts on remote or hybrid work? Like, do you think remote work hurts efficiency in a company?
1: It's a good question. So, I don't know, it really depends. I think it really depends on the personnel. So some jobs really don't have, you know, they're not really required for their staff for, to, to come into the office, so they can easily mm-hmm. cut cost by not having a physical office or by having a very small physical office. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of just like the average employee, I mean, I don't know what it is on, on a company level. And, you know, I work, I work remotely. I go into the office a couple times. So like hybrid, every basically. Single, yeah. I yeah. have a hybrid work environment and, and I'm fully remote. I mean, mm-hmm. and you're fully remote and that's definitely preferable for me. I'd rather work. What I would love to do would just be going to my, going to my office like once every tw- two weeks, like something mm-hmm. like that. Twice a month would be my ideal circumstance. And especially now that I have a family, you know, you don't like, it's, it's kind of funny. You hear these stories. Parents always tell you, it's like, oh, it's so hard to be away from your kids. It really is. It's really difficult. Like I went into my office the other day and it's like, fuck man, I'm leaving my kid. Like I don't want to leave. Even though my kid's with his mom, it's mm-hmm. going to even get worse when, when, um, you know, we need to get childcare and stuff when she goes right. back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, it, it's a necessary necessity for me in terms of just um you know quality of life um, and when it comes to efficiency i think it really just matters on the maturity of the person right so mm-hmm. i wouldn't think that working remote is great for young for young people who are just graduating from college um actually i know it's not great for young people just graduating from college because they don't know anything Um, they need to learn from people in the office. They need to make friends in the office. Um, it's also good for their social lives and stuff. You and I, we Mm -hmm. met in an office space. We met in an office and we became really close friends. And, um, that's something that you can get when you're, when you're graduating from school and you're joining a company, you can make friends for your life. I'm in my thirties now. I'm not making any more friends for life. I've (laughs) had all all of the friends I've made in my life. I've made my friends, maybe I'll meet a future friends when it comes to like you know maybe baseball practice or something like that, or you know right. kids sports or something. but um, in terms of just new friends now no i don't I don't really need any new friends um, but yeah, for young people uh, but I, but I'm ranting though, and I'm not answering your question about efficiency. So for someone who's mature, people who know what they're doing, I think it actually can improve efficiency. Um, it just cuts time, cuts down on commuting time. Um, it it um, it. Um, I mean, that's the main thing, right? It cuts down on their commuting time. If you have the maturity of to not get distracted by, you know, whatever it is at home that can distract you, then 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 I think you will be more efficient because you have you know you're not going to race back to catch, to beat traffic, or you're not going to race back to catch a train. You're You can, you can, you can work from home, you know, a couple extra hours, get something done. Um, but yeah, you know what I'm saying? It depends on the maturity level of somebody.
2: So I I agree with you. Uh, I, I work fully remote and I actually think I'm more efficient at home than I was when I was commuting into an office for the reasons that you've outlined. Just that extra time that I don't spend actually going, you know, commuting means I can sleep in a little longer, which means I'm fresher and sharper, you know, for the day. And it usually means that I can work later too, because, you know, after the work hour, I'm thinking I, I got to catch a train. So I want to get the hell out of here. So usually I'll, I'll work much more, many more hours from remotely than, than I do end up than I used to, um, when I was in an office. So there's, there's a lot of efficiency gains there for me. But I guess the question that you do bring up is that like, it depends on the person, right? And so companies will often have this this conversation, like how do we monitor and and make sure that the people that we have are doing what they're supposed to be doing while, you know, working from home. And and the reason why I'm talking about fucking work efficiency was because I found this interesting Reddit thread a few weeks back on a particularly spicy topic related to uh, JP Morgan and their use of a system called the Workforce Activity Data Utility or WADU. Wait, in,
1: what, what, one more argument, though. I know okay. you're going to get into something super weird. Okay. One thing that, in a, or on an organizational level, a mm-hmm. benefit from working from home is that you can actually judge people more off merit and the quality of work, because what you're eliminating when you have a fully remote staff are the office politics, mm-hmm. because you're not... I mean, people, companies try to do these kind of camaraderie hours where, you know, you play some stupid game and guess someone's favorite movie and you talk about your, you know, your, 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 uh, you talk about your guilty pleasure in, ta- in terms of reality TV mm-hmm. thing. You have those, but no one really gives a shit about them. You stay there for five minutes and you bounce whenever you can. Um, you don't have the same. Opportunity to uh, kind of schmooze people in your company. Kissing ass. <laughs>
0: you
1: don't have. Yeah, it eliminates the brown nosers, the people who mm. get by in the workplace by kind of uh, exactly kissing ass and and uh, playing the office politics. When you're working fully remote, what's ma- what you're mainly judged by is your proficiency and the pro- in the productivity that you're doing. So, mm. in that sense, I think that that it can actually lead to. Uh, efficiency, because you're looking at your personnel in a different way. And it kind of sounds a little bit robotic. It sounds like, oh, you're not looking at them as humans, you're looking at them as as uh, efficiency machines or products or things that are adding to your workforce. But that's that's what it is. I mean, when you're labor, your labor is I mean, that's why they're hiring, they're hiring you not because, um, you know, to be nice, they're hiring you to suck everything out. Of you, that all the productivity that they can. I mean, that's the. I mean, I'm not even saying that in a negative. You, 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 when you hire somebody for a job, or when you for or an employee, your goal is to suck the productivity out of them in a good way, like to get as much as you can out of them to make a profit. And um, you know, when you're working remote and you're not doing that office politics game, you can really look at people more mathematically, in you know, a numbers and like, okay, well, what am I getting from this person? Can we eliminate mm-hmm. these departments? I don't really give a shit about this guy's mortgage or his kids. D- there's nothing really there. I never met them. So I never seen a picture of them or anything. Screw them. I like, fire them all. So yeah, I guess in that terms, in those terms, uh, working remote could be lead to more efficiency.
2: Right. Well, that's a really good segue back into this uh, uh, JP Morgan Wadu thing, because, you know, how do you do that? Right. How do you measure the outcomes that you're talking about that that, you know, are are that productivity? And this Wadu thing is pretty interesting because it's an AI driven system that tracks employees productivity and their behaviors to a degree that some people are actually calling uh, intrusive or even like dystopian. Um, So. So the basics on this is that the the system has the capability to monitor not only like the actual work output of an employee, but also interestingly, their emotional states, their stress levels, personal phone usage, a a bunch of really weird things. And the kicker for this is that it is deployed for both remote work and in office. And if half of what I read about this is true, even just half of it, it's absolutely nuts. So like, you know, I, I think about, you know, in our technology-driven world, there's this tension between the drive for efficiency and the right to privacy, which, you know, I think is a is a pretty prominent uh, um, conversation that happens in our workplaces. But it, it's also really similar to the tension in politics that we see between the drive to promote something like national security and the right to privacy. And we've talked about that topic more than a few times on this show. So I was just digging into this this Wadu thing and uh, the context behind this Reddit thread, and I learned a ton about JP Morgan's history, and I thought it would make a pretty good topic for our show. So today I figured we could look at that Wadu system in more detail, maybe talk a little bit about it and its implications, and then we can go over like some of JP Morgan's history um, you know, we can talk about it as a case study for ca- capitalism. We can look at the history of banking in general. Um, and also, uh, and importantly, cause it's bro history, uh, you know, we might want to talk about JP Morgan's involvement in foreign policy over the years. Sound like a good plan.
1: That sounds like a plan. And, um, I mean, I've heard of other financial institutions using, you know, employing that type of, uh, managerial system over mm-hmm. their remote workers, especially during COVID. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not going to name the firm, um, cause I don't want to implicate my friend in any way, but my friend works for a, a large financial institution that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a trader of some sort there. And he, he was telling me during COVID that they had, um, you know, you know, we're just speaking to fucking, you know, what, uh, cube monkey people, <laughs> not the people who have like, you know, kind of real jobs, you mm-hmm. know, doing shit or making things, um, right now. But it is what it is. He was telling me that they had a camera on them at all times when they worked remotely. So it mm-hmm. would there was a timer when they would be off screen. So if they mm-hmm. had to do something or they, the timer would click and they would get back and it'd be okay. You were gone for 14 minutes, and now it tally mm-hmm. up. So mm-hmm. that that was really, really weird. And it, and I told him, I was like, man, I would I would quit. Like I don't think <laughs> I don't. I mean, I probably wouldn't have quit if I needed a job. But I mean, that that's haunting. Like I would I would absolutely despise that right. if there were if I was constantly being monitored through my laptop camera and then it would note it would count the time where there where, where your, um, your camera was off too. So. Yep. Just, there was literally just a surveillance camera on them all day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And now that was That's just ex- insanely creepy. That's exactly what this water thing is. Plus some stuff. So I think you're going to really find this pretty fascinating. Um, like I said earlier, it's, it's basically an AI system that they put in place a few years back to track their employees they built it technically shortly before the pandemic, but they deployed it like in full during the lockdowns as a measure to, to keep tabs on their employees while they were remotely working. Fascinatingly enough, I actually found a PDF from JP Morgan just on the internet <laughs> on their systems policies. And it reads really boring and it, standard stuff that you would expect. You know, shit like we track your emails and we track how many times you log in and what IP addresses you're on and, you know, your calls and, you know, uh for in person, you know, when you're in the office, they look at how how often you enter, when you enter and leave the building, you know, with their badge system, and, and they confirm that with video cameras. But um, if this nameless redditor that I read, who claims to be an employee of J.P. Morgan, uh, is correct, um, there's some there's some weird shit going on. Here's here's some quotes on from what he's alleging or she they are alleging is happening at JP Morgan. It's called a warning for anyone working at or thinking about working at JP Morgan Chase Co. And it's since so, it's
1: on the, since it's on Reddit, you know, it's true.
2: Oh, it's gotta be real. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this Reddit is no where one's I never, found No one's found ever
1: made it. up a story about on Reddit.
2: No, no, no. Reddit is where I found it, but there's dozens of articles on pretty much every, you know, um, major news outlet that's, that's confirming this as well. So I feel pretty good about it. It's just this is where I found it, and there's the spicier elements are on there. Um, so here's a bit on, on how J.P. Morgan's always watching their employees in the office. So it says, WADU uses an array of HD cameras at the office to monitor your nonverbal body language all throughout the day. The collected information is then fed into the AI slash ML system, so AI or machine learning system, and is used to update your WADU profile in real time. Every manager gets access to a dashboard that lists all the metrics about their subordinates. The biometric feeds are updated from the facial and behavioral tracking. Have a bad day? Stressed about something? Wadu has already noticed this and alerted your manager. Can't focus? Not working at your usual pace? Wadu has already noticed this and alerted your manager. Did something you normally do did you do something you normally don't do? It's possible Wadu flagged it as suspicious and alerted your manager. So You know, I mean, I understand using cameras in an office to say, like, track when people come and go, you know, especially for anyone who's like working hourly um, or, you know, for really important uh, types of jobs where they need to keep good security, um, like a bank. Uh, But it strikes me as a little creepy that they'll go so far as to analyze your mood. Like, why? (laughs) Like, I doubt they're going to go. (laughs) Dude, it sounds (laughs) like. Go ahead. It
1: sounds like the things that we accuse China of doing to the Uyghurs.
2: Yeah. You know. It does. It really does. <laughs> I mean, I doubt that, they're going to go and like, like your manager is probably not going to go and send you a box of chocolates or like some flowers if they see that you're having a bad day. So like this can only be used negatively against you, like this information, you know?
1: In a corporate structure like that, your, your, your manager greets you with somebody from HR and they're like, we noticed that you are having trouble focusing. Is there anything <laughs> yeah. that we can do to help you? Like something like that happens. it <laughs> weird. Um, yeah. That is, that is bizarre. I know people who work at Chase, um, but not, I don't know if I know people who work at Chase who are not like loan officers or stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I doubt like loan officers would be monitored like that, but I don't know. I, w- I need to follow up with people. I know see if this is true. Yeah. Um, because that is freaky and weird, but isn't it again at other financial institutions, I know for a fact that they were employing things like this, um, during especially during covid I'm not sure if they would they do this now cuz a lot of the financial institutions a lot of those employees are are going in but mm-hmm. what's his name um what the fuck is his name Jamie Dimon mm-hmm. the CEO of JP Morgan he was complaining in, you know the entire time about during covid about how Productivity has decreased, and all this stuff, and probably you know, because he's of, got
2: his cameras looking at people all day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: um, but I know a lot of other financial institutions were really one of the first groups to go back um, during COVID to mm-hmm. going back to like more consistent office hours. Um, right. It really depends on the company culture and stuff. Newer right. tech companies, newer comp, newer groups, um, they're usually staying more lenient on that. Um, but I think more legacy brands, um, you know, people I know who work for more corporate brands with, they, they're, they're already, you know, back three to five days a week. Right. Which I think is fucking torture to be completely right. honest. That's so, <laughs> and that's, and I don't even know how I did it before. I don't know how I did it before. Me neither. I mean, mm-hmm. I worked five days a week in an office, um, from like eight to six
2: minimum, when Sometimes we started this podcast, for, for,
1: for years during this podcast and we still did the podcast, I mean, I don't know how I was able to I, like I can't imagine a time that time not being like the hard times. And now we we we're was hundred percent normal. We had all the
2: energy in the world.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe it's because you're young, or maybe we're just too accustomed to um uh, to uh you know, working in basketball shorts, but, um, enough about, enough about that. Um, and that's, (laughs) that's the corniest kind of office joke. Now (laughs) it's like, I would get up, but I would show you my shorts (laughs) 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 Johnson. (laughs) This guy's a hoot. Wish we were back in the office. I'd buy you a beer after work. (laughs) Oh, I can't. (laughs) Um,
2: Let's, let's get back on track. Here's, here's uh, a bit more on the same thread on how they track you at home, because you were kind of you were alluding to this based on your personal testimony from your friend. So it says, Wadu is also watching and listening wherever you're working from home. If you installed Citrix Workplace on your computer and you permitted it to access your web camera and microphone after login, you have connected those devices to Wadu. If you're using an issued Chromebook, those permissions are already conveniently accepted for you. You'll notice that your web camera will flash right after login. This is not an initial connection flash. Your web camera just took a burst shot of pictures and sent it to Wadu. The pictures will be scanned for anything deemed unprofessional or unsafe. They also like mentioned like if they see a TV on or like if they see drug paraphernalia, like things that like would be like legit concern. But they also mentioned some stuff that would be, you know, unintentional. They say if you see your web camera flash randomly, that was your manager or someone in security requesting a burst shot of pictures from your camera. So your manager can be like, Hmm, what's Henry doing right now? And like push a button and take a picture of you, take a burst shot picture of you to see what you're doing. Um, you also notice that your microphone will go hot shortly after login. Anything you say will be processed by Wadu. All background noises will be processed by Wadu. Say something bad about your boss. Wadu flagged it. Say something bad about another coworker. Wadu flagged it. Have a moment of anger or frustration. Wadu flagged it. Wadu is trained to detect a wide variety of keywords, phrases, and other sound events. Your manager can also connect and listen to your live audio feed. So I find this part really fucking crazy. Like, you ever hear these stories of, like, school admins hacking into, like, school-provided computers and taking pictures of kids and shit? You ever hear those stories? No, but that's terrifying. It's it's a thing, and this sounds a lot like that, but, like, the adult work version. And it's fucking nuts. Like, why do, why do they need to eavesdrop on you at any point of the day
1: who do they catch masturbating to put all this in place
2: i mean that Couple. would be like ends <laughs> justifi- that would be like ends justifying <laughs> means here but who didn't you know, they i i think this huh. is pretty orwellian and, and more kind of like a runway runaway capitalism like overdoing the micromanaging to squeeze out more and more efficiency for in the name of profits but you know the, the implications there are that you know you lose privacy, and the question becomes like a to if you're working remotely, or indeed even if you're working in the office. Like, what measure of privacy do you are you you know do you have a right to? Here's a bit more on the on the thread about that. So Wadu determines how productive you are by analyzing a variety of metrics about your session input. It includes words typed, mouse clicks, application activity, and many other things. The analysis also determines if someone is a unique contributor or if they are a regular worker. In overall rankings, unique contributors are always ranked higher than regular workers. The same analysis can also determine who is essentially dead weight. These people are ranked last. Upper management pushes a narrative that all the surveillance is required to safeguard the firm against insider threats while that may be partially true, the main reason is to train and refine the AI or ML system. They want every employee profile to be as accurate and detailed as possible. They say we're not supposed to use anything from an employee's WADU profile to make employment decisions, but it's kind of hard to ignore a ranked list of subordinates with productivity forecasted. So, you know, as it's alleged, I think they're using this in an attempt to increase efficiency. Without maybe thinking ahead about those potential implications, and you know, like they point out, I think there's legitimate concerns about this, um, especially for the remote work part. Uh, I can only imagine how this could be re- like misused by some bad actor in J.P. Morgan. And even if that never happens, there's still a considerable risk for data breaches. Like imagine you know somebody hacks into J.P. Morgan's Wadu stuff, and now they can listen in on hundreds, thousands of people all at once. They can take pictures. World of years. See Here's,
1: anything <laughs> here? This kind of reminds me of. Do you, did you watch Black or I think Black Mirror is still on Black yeah, Mirror? Yeah, they have a new season out
2: actually. Yeah, there was
1: an episode in one of the beginning seasons of something kind of like this where yep. everything that you did was recorded, mm-hmm. so it became kind of like a cross reference. So if you were applying for a loan, they would look through everything that you did. Right, that was a commentary. I think for a on job.
2: The- yeah, that was a commentary on the China score as like the social scores. But yeah, this is kind of like J.P. Morgan's take on that. No, sure. it
1: wasn't that. It was a different... The, the commentary on the social scores was the one where the girl kept on getting ranking lower and lower and lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. This was a different thing. And the guy was like going through his wife's and he noticed that... Or not his wife's. It was like his, someone who he knew and he noticed his wife was having an affair with him. <laughs> affair on him. But mm-hmm. it's it's a it's an episode of black mirror which is basically the new twilight zone um what i what i fear could be a possibility and i'm sure some sicko is fucking thinking this how do we use this as a way to like hey maybe the data belongs to we, we you know, this could be your reference. Say, you know, we go to a company. Like, hey, we're going to hire this person. Can we have his Wadu file? Right. That's the scary thing. Like, right. what if it becomes like a like a social like reference industry like, hmm, standard or something it, like that? It, yeah, an mm-hmm. industry standard. Because I mean, when people give, re- I mean, you give references, hopefully to someone who likes you at your company when you're applying <laughs> yeah. to a new position, and you know, they're supposed to just say, "Yeah, he's great. Hire him. He's a great person." He'll be great at this job and um now it's like like we nope, have we're not hiring to, you
2: because you spend an we, average of 37 minutes on your phone every day <laughs> you know it's like wow okay
1: yeah we're not hiring you because you visit the website um you know whatever website barstool sports or whatever something that's
2: and you know, and like, i can hear productive i can hear the the contrary arguments already Right. Well, oh, if you're on barstool sports or if you're looking at your phone, you're a bad worker. What if you're a fantastic worker and you're outproducing everyone? But just that's just your routine. You look at Reddit every now and again, you look at Barstool sports, you still fucking perform. You figured out a way how to do both. But because Wadu's tracking everything now that looks negative that applies negatively to you. So they can, it could have implications on your on your career advancement, even if you are producing at the at the final level, it's like they're also looking at all this weird shit that you're doing. And saying well you could do more you know uh, I think it's weird it's weird it's not just for the people who are fucking around doing nothing which uh, truly there are many I, I've worked remotely for years now and I've encountered several coworkers who it's clear to me that they're not doing shit um, but you know I think it's to the detriment of the people who are fucking crushing it you know and deserve the kind of freedoms that that frankly I think should be a right but You can but you
1: can cut those people loose by just their performance in general. If you don't do shit all day, eventually that's going to appear, you know, that's eventually you're going to be judged off the work that you do. Right. But systems
2: like this are intended to like find to like prevent that from happening in the first place. Like imagine you hire somebody today and it takes you six months to realize that they're not doing shit. Well, now you've paid that person for six straight months, right? And then you fire them what this Wadu shit is looking to do is like catch that shit at week two so that you don't end up paying them for six months and you can make that decision to fire them earlier right which in one way makes a ton of sense right but again it comes at the cost of you know all of your other workers who are doing what they're supposed to be doing is privacy right it's the same argument that's made for like you know the national security state illegally monitoring you know US citizens and and you know people abroad yes the idea is to catch a terrorist before they are a terrorist and to figure it out. But at what cost? The cost is the privacy of every, you know, person here in the United States, right? They can see all your dick pics, right? You're not a terrorist, but you're sending dick pics. Guess what? The government saw your dick pics. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's the way it is. That's what Edward Snowden was talking about. You know, this is just the corporate version of that.
1: Yeah, man, that's scary. That's uh that's that's terrifying. I wanna confirm um i want to ask people from jp morgan about this if this is indeed this is intrusive or if this is something that's being laid out across the company cuz that is that is pretty uh pretty pretty scary i would yeah. imagine most corp- most corporations don't have anything like don't don't do
2: this at all well most corporations um, aren't jp morgan jp morgan is like the biggest financial institution in the world so so they have yeah. a lot of money to develop this kind of shit but i mean honestly look Workplace surveillance is not new, right? I, th- I just think we hit a new chapter in workplace surveillance that is scary because we're not yet used to it. You know, using AI, these big companies are able to m- monitor employees in ways that we could have never imagined just even a few years ago. And in some cases, it, like like I've pointed out, it could be a really good thing. I mean, look at like how, a- example, old example, Ford revolutionized manufacturing, right? Before that, every person in a manufacturing plant would would be, making an entire finished product whereas ford flipped the script and made every person on the line do like the same small task over and over and over again and found productivity from that you know what we learned was that it's possible for a company to make some tweaks and processes and gain crazy efficiency increases and that means more money and basically since then every company in the world has always been looking for the next tweak to help them make more money or reduce costs to save money and that's just that's just capitalism 101 right and that's not necessarily wrong in and of itself it's just what it is and all of this talk of e- of efficiency that could be linked to a theory called Taylorism uh, which I just learned about recently and this is made by a guy Frederick Winslow Taylor he's an American mechanical engineer in the early 20th century and he basically proposed the concept of like scientific management or Taylorism um, and that theory uh, emphasizes like the maximization of productivity through the optimization of work processes and also a granular division of labor. I'm quoting, by the way. Basically, Taylor tried to turn work into science, right? Where the most efficient method could be discovered and then replicated to improve productivity. And Wadu here just sounds like ta- Taylorism on steroids, right? And and what's different is that Taylor's theory was mostly made to address op- optimizing like physical labor like how many cars can you make right but wadu takes this beyond that physical output like what did you do what is your final end product and they're now optimizing and looking into analyzing things like your behavior and your emotions as a way to maybe increase increase efficiency and that's really creepy but maybe they're onto something or maybe it's a mistake. I don't know, <laughs> right? Like I'm not an expert in this field, so.
1: Sounds like our corporate overlords are are taking things too far right now. Yeah, sounds like it. Anyway, just ima- imagine how that can collude with the state. Oof. Right. But yeah. yeah. that I mean that is that is, I mean, that is something that's worth looking more into. Um, if you someone. I mean, J.P. Morgan's the largest financial institution in the world. Chances are, people know someone who works there. So I don't know. There's ask lots them. of
2: articles on it too. If you want to look at them too, we just literally Google it. Google Wadu.
1: Ask, ask them what their
2: experience is. But
1: again, you know, I know this. I know other financial institutions, large ones that do this. That do. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they use Wadu. WADU's proprietary. to J.P. Yeah, Morgan. It's proprietary. Yeah, proprietary. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's in depth as that, but. Man, that's certainly got to be a uh a uh
2: like a selling point for employment. Hey, we don't monitor you <laughs> <laughs> right? We're not gonna take pictures of you and your boxers <laughs> but I guess yeah.
1: in today's age in today's age, I mean it is really easy to make bad hires when you're doing it remotely yeah for you sure can you can I've really hire people who are like, i mean, did you hear about early on during covid there are some people who were um like these Silicon Valley guys were, um, basically taking other jobs while working there. This actually happened very
2: recently to my fiance and her company, they hired some sales guy and evidently he was working like three or four different jobs, but like not actually working at any of them. It's kind of like a cross between silent quitting and, you know, like just taking on new jobs to get the paycheck until basically they find out, um, which is really fascinating. Um, and I know a few people who have multiple jobs, but are actually doing them legitimately too. Um, nevertheless, the expectation
1: is that they're, they're on hours at the same time. So they're working Mm -hmm. like these, these coders were working like, you know, two different coding jobs and getting two different two base salaries. And maybe they were able to do one job in a couple hours and then devote their time. But I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the the remote hiring, especially when you don't know anyone, it's it's um, we don't know that person. It's it's uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to for sure. to it's it's it it is very difficult to hire people. Um, to, for sure. So so, I mean, if you're hiring somebody for a business, wouldn't you kind of be tempted? And and you can have their uh their entire catalog of productivity uh, down to their like you know, their facial expressions, like, oh, are they happy to be there type of thing? I don't know. Because, like,
2: I, w- would I be tempted? Maybe. Um, personally, like, because I, I do manage people, too, and my management style is, like, I like to hire people based on their merits, and, like, I generally, in the interviewing process, give them tests to to make sure that they feel competent. And then, of course, I also get references and back channel those references. So that te- So far, it seems to work for me. And then once you're hired, I generally give people a pretty long leash length because I expect people to do their job, but I set really clear expectations, you know, so this is exactly what you need. So if it's, if it was like a salesperson, that's the easiest, right? This is your goal, either hit your goal or be pacing towards it and there's no problem. And I don't need to look into anything else. Right. And, and I, I have that, that process with any, any person, even non-salespeople. So would I be tempted to go back into their prior history and, and you know, see, are they actually productive on a, on a level that's beyond just their metrics? Maybe. But I'm not a proponent of setting something like that up because I think, you know, it's just, it's inhuman, right? At that point, let's just create robots to to do the work instead, you know?
1: Yeah, it it is, it is quite uh, dehumanizing and some breaking news. There was a man who was trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border This was recent, and he was caught with snakes in his pants. He was trying to smuggle pythons from Canada into the United States. Pretty crazy story, and I'll leave you to create your own jokes about that. But uh, we have some other breaking news as well, and that's Harry's razors. So Harry's razors, they're carving their own path in grooming to give you better designed and better value grooming products. Harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products, so they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge. Guys, I recently hit second puberty. Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. So um, I was using these very crappy razors, and they would get dull right away. And often I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull which is bad for everyone. Well, Harry's shaving products have changed things for me. So it's a really great quality shave. I never cut my face and uh, my face feels nice and smooth. Also, their shaving cream smells really good. I really feel like a new man whenever I use my Harry's razors. These razors are some of the best out there. They're for an awesome price as well. They're German engineer blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half as what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. And uh, you have to go with the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash brohistory. That's harrys.com slash brohistory for a $3 trial set.
0: It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The tech sector especially... Where you're seeing mass lay, where you saw mass layoffs. I haven't looked mm-hmm. at it lately, but you know, there were. There's no secret. There were mass layoffs there. Um, there's a lot of departments that, like you know, people are actually working really hard, but it's just like bottom line doesn't really dictate. They don't really add to the profitability to the company, so right. they've been cut. I know some people from Google who were who've been cut, and they were they were super smart people, and and I'm sure. Also, I that mean, that, were, that tends um, to
2: all, all of the CEOs that did mass layoffs have all admitted that they, that they hired too quickly. And that's kind of like their, fault, yeah. you know, like they, they expanded way too fast without like really pressure testing the, the profitability of hiring all those people. And then they basically fucked over the people that they hired, right? Like regardless if they were doing well or not, you know, it, like there was an expectation that, I mean, most, what most people stick around in a job these days for like three years, right? Like that's the average. So, you know, when they, when they get hired, they're expecting to be there for at least three years and some of these people had just been hired, you know, within the last couple of months. And then suddenly they're like, oh shit, we made a mistake. Like Facebook is a good example. Mark Zuckerberg was like, yeah, I fucked up. We hired too many people too quickly. And that's really fucked up for the, the people who have to experience that. Right. Cause you know, sure. I'm, I'm sure they got some severances, but that's not going to help them. I mean, you just had a kid. Can you imagine being laid off? Like that sucks. Especially yeah, if it wasn't your fault, you know.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's and if you're only there for a small amount of time, too, most likely your severance is very big. But right. um, or if it, anything, um, all right. So let's talk about the history. I hopefully people found this uh, this this chatter about, I guess, workplace ethics interesting. Business ethics in <laughs> Billy Madison. Yeah. <laughs> Billy, when he asks the question, he's like, I'll choose business ethics. And then Eric's like, the, the, the thing about ethics is... Uh, the... People get the reference. <laughs> anyway. What, what was, what was <laughs> Billy's question? The industrial revolution? And the puppy was industry. Um, okay, so where are we going? So what's the point, Danny? Where are we going? <laughs> what's the where point? are we going with this? We can't. Okay,
2: like like I said earlier, while I was going down the the Wadu rabbit hole, I learned a bunch about JP Morgan and I figured we can go over that history. And it's actually really surprising, not only just because of how long they've been around, but because of how involved they are in one way or another in so many big historical moments. Um some quick facts, JP Morgan is more than 200 years old. Uh, and today is arguably one of the biggest companies in the world, if not the biggest bank that's not like a country's central bank, you know. Um, but to kind of talk about this, we, we have to talk about J.P. Morgan's predecessor, uh, ancient predecessor, the Manhattan Company. And the Manhattan Company was started in 1799 by Aaron Burr. A, a. Ron Burr. A, a. Ron Burr who you might know as the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton. Unless he didn't, and now you do. And so that's actually the first little mini story that I wanted to cover. Um, so for, for those that didn't see the play Hamilton, here's the short story. Uh, Hamilton and Burr were at odds for years for political issues. And Burr was a Democratic-Republican, and Hamilton was a Federalist. They disagreed on a ton of things, mostly policy. Um, Hamilton started talking shit about Burr. And called him a dangerous opportunist, right? Because he's like banking guy, right? After Burr beat Hamilton's father in uh, his, Hamilton's father-in-law uh, in the seventeen ninety-one Senate race. A um, little later, things got interesting during the presidential election of eighteen hundred when uh, Burr and Thomas Jefferson were running mates uh, against the incumbent president, John Adams. Uh, and in the event of a tie, the U.S. Constitution mandated that. The election had to be decided by the house of representatives and guess what at the end of the vote jefferson and burr each had 73 votes and that caused a tie so hamilton despite disagreeing with jefferson and burr you know he thought that he was a man of principle and he ended up actually using his influence in the house to uh, ensure jefferson's victory thus also burr uh, would become the vice president not long after that, according to a newspaper report, Burr challenges Hamilton to a duel because Hamilton had expressed a quote, despicable opinion of Burr at a dinner. Burr demanded an apology. Hamilton refused. And then Burr challenged him to a duel. Like, can you imagine if dueling was still a thing today? Like, so much shit gets talked online and in person. I feel like half the US would be dead if we still had dueling. Yeah.
1: Dueling now is like, just like um, cyberbullying,
2: I guess, right? Is that the new version? I mean, but you don't die from cyberbullying, you know, at least not directly, (laughs) you know. Um, But anyway, the the duel took place in Weehawken, New Jersey. Uh, It was conducted according to the Code Duello, which is a set of rules for pistol dueling. And uh, that morning, the men faced each other with... 56 caliber pistols Hamilton got wounded and he died the next day in New York what was interesting about this Burr was charged with murder in New York and New Jersey but he was never tried in either of those jurisdictions and he went back to being you know vice president um, but his political career was effectively over cause like you know he fucking shot a guy um, not only just a guy he shot a congress uh, like a congressperson so you know not a really good look. Uh, the incident obviously led to some public outcries against dueling and that contributed to the decline in dueling over the cup the, the decades that followed. Um, and that duel is often remembered as a like a pivotal event in American history. I mean, you know the fucking Hamilton is like one of the biggest plays right now and people talk about it all the time. By the way, I'm going to see Hamilton in Puerto Rico uh, this Saturday so I'm, I'm very excited. That's but, cool.
1: They have they have um, a theater. They have a theater there.
2: Yeah, it's just a few blocks away. Did so they do it s-
1: where they had the cockfighting? Uh, n- cock
2: no, 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 no. That wasn't. They had a whole stadium for cockfighting. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how funny no would that be if they
1: made that into like a, a theater, a theater,
2: <laughs> the cockfighting theater. No. Um. Anyway, what I think is crazy about the story is that Burr, who shot, you know, fucking. Hamilton, over a dispute that, you know, Hamilton thought he was a, an extreme opportunist or a dangerous opportunist and because he was running the company um, that would eventually become J.P. Morgan, right? A financial company, man, the Manhattan company. Um, so that's kind of like the first like big point where, where J.P. Morgan kind of inserts itself in, in American history here. Uh, but back to J.P. Morgan history, you know. Um, the Manhattan Company eventually becomes J.P. Morgan, right? So the Manhattan Company's initial purpose was to supply clean water to New York City's residents, um, but the company had this like hidden agenda, which was to be a bank and circumvent the the then dominant Bank of New York. Um, the company eventually became Chase National Bank, and that's going to be important for later. Uh, later in the mid 19th century, two important figures pop up. um, Junius S. Morgan, uh, who was a prominent financier, and his son, John Piermont Morgan, as in J.P. Morgan. And they uh, set up J.P. Morgan & Co., also known as the House of Morgan, uh, and that was established in 1895. And it soon became instrumental in the consolidation of several industries, from railroads to steel, electricity, and telecommunications, all kinds of shit. right? So they're deeply, deeply involved in, in a lot of the changes there. Later uh, in 1907, there was the Panic of 1907, uh, which marked a turning point in the company and, and even America's financial history. And during that crisis, um, JP Morgan convened a meeting in, of New York's leading bankers in his library and convinced them all to pool their resources to stabilize the banks and restore public confidence. Which sounds like a really good thing until you realize that this act eventually led to the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913. So they made the Federal, they made the Fed <laughs> JP Morgan, effectively, which is pretty wild. Um, and then you can fast forward to the second half of the 20th century, and and there's a series of significant mergers and and acquisitions that began to basically shape the modern JP Morgan chase. Um, Chase National Bank acquires the Bank of Manhattan Company in 1955, uh, which was the uh, the Burr Company, if you remember. And they merged together with J.P. Morgan & Co. to form J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. So, that's where we're at. Pretty fascinating early story, huh?
1: Well, thank you, Danny, for taking us through that exhilarating history of J.P. Morgan, Chase. Um no, but it's, I mean, of course, it's interesting. And yeah, you know, they were, J.P. Morgan was really influential, like you said, in, in, um, in, in creating the Federal Reserve. Um, I guess, you know, before J.P. Morgan was really, though, J.P. Morgan, you know, they weren't always the biggest bank in the country. Um, no. You know, the first big, in the early 19th century, um, in the U.S., the way capital markets, they were primarily centered around... Um, you know financing industries related to either transportation or, or infrastructure. So the big key areas of focus were railroads and canals. Mm-hmm. So governments at both the federal and the state level, they would issue bonds as a means of, of financing these projects. And these government bonds were were actively traded in the capital markets. Railroads, At this time, it wasn't just the US, it was basically the entire industrial world at the time. I mean, they they required a substantial amount of capital investment and the government relied on borrowing to finance these projects. So um, investment banks, they were selected as underwriters for government bond offerings and. They were granted exclusive rights to distribute and sell distribute and sell these bonds to investors now the problem was and still is, is that these investment banks dealing with government bonds they they had close ties to the government
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and when I say they had close ties to the government I mean they had personal relationships with government officials
2: sometimes they and were the government
1: <laughs> yeah sometimes they were the government so. You know, through their advisory services um, and, you know, they also had direct involvement in debt management, Um, investment banks could influence government policies very easily, especially when it was related to debt issuance and then interest rates and financial regulation. So, I mean, when we talk about the mixed economy, what we're talking about is really just like the capture of of the regular, the regulatory state by the corporation. It's kind of what we have today. Mm-hmm. And or what we've had for a long time. Um, but yeah, so, you know, financial institutions were able to, to capture the uh, the regulatory body of financial institutions and interest, and interest rates. And this influence allowed investment banks to really shape the rules and regulations that would govern government bond markets. Now, um, before J.P. Morgan, though, you know, the big banker was, or the first major invest, the first big major investment bank in the U.S. was Jay Cook and Company. They were based out of Ohio. And, um, you know, for those of you who know your Civil War history, Jay Cook, Cook was one of the big financiers of the Civil War on the Union side. Jay Cook had heavy ties to the Republican Party. And his brother, well, his brother was the editor-in-chief, I think, of one of the largest Republican Party magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were heavily, you know, intersected with the Republican Party. You know, the Republican Party at the time was a new party. They were close friends with uh, one of, with an Ohio senator named Senator um, Salmon P. Chase.
2: His name and, is Salmon?
1: <laughs> yeah, Salmon. Salmon Chase. <laughs> and um, when the Lincoln administration took office in, in 1861 the Cooks lobbied hard to make Chase the appointment of secretary of treasury. So in return, Chase gave Cook a monopoly in underwriting the entire federal debt. So during the Civil War, and in the Civil War is kind of that period of time when the U.S. kind of turns into what it is today. That's why I look at the Civil War is it's, it's it's the completion of the nationalization project of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, minus the future geno- ethnic genocide of native Americans, but it's literally like the completion, like the, the state has finally been created, you know, with it, with its financial system, with its banking backers, um, you know, the, the what it is now the United States, that's like kind of like our true founding. Um, but during the, during the civil war, um, Basically, a handful of investment banks, such as Jay Cook and company, control the, the entire American financial sector. Now, after the Civil War, they go bankrupt because, in, you know, there's a, a lot of reasons why, why uh, Jay Cook goes, goes, uh, goes bankrupt. But one of the big reasons is that there was a decrease in demand for government bonds after the war. Um, and then there was also, you know, there was a financial crisis in the 1870s. A lot of the railroads that were being were really bloated, a lot of these railroad companies were extremely bloated. So Jay Cook um, goes under and then that kind of leads to the rise of J.P. Morgan and J.P. Morgan is more of kind of a, you know, he has ties to both parties. not jesus but he's more of a he's more ties with the democrats than than the republicans Um, yeah i mean
2: i think at that point you know it really was less to do with with what political party they were tied to and just how they were tied to the government as a whole uh honestly Yeah.
1: yeah like the two the two big the two big banking parties you know the rothschilds who had like basically they had an agent who was uh, the treasurer of the National Democratic Party for many years? That was August Belmont, um, who I believe he was the he was related to the Rothschilds by marriage. You know, he wasn't a Rothschild, but he was related to him. Um, and then so him and Morgan had these huge had a huge influence on the Democratic administration of um, of Grover Cleveland. Yep. And then Cleveland Cleveland himself, you know, he came from the Morgan clique. Um, Grover Cleveland was a buff a lawyer from Buffalo and he was a railroad buff. He was a railroad Buffalo. He was a <laughs> railroad. He was a railroad lawyer. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of his major clients was one of the, the JP Morgan or one of the Morgan c- controlled banks, uh, New York central railroad. Right. And, um, you know, in between his, you know, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of Morgan people, or basically Morgan-directed people, were in the Grover Cleveland uh, administration. Yeah, um, I got a lo- I got a lot
2: on that actually, and I think this is a really yeah, good well, good segue because I also wanted to talk about J.P. Morgan's role in in the military-industrial complex and in foreign policy, uh, and I think this is a hundred percent touching on that. Uh, you're you're hitting the nail on the head there, Henry. Um, so J.P. Morgan and its pre- or its predecessor companies. Um, they obviously played a huge part in foreign policy and intervention since at a minimum the late 1800s, you know, primarily by, as you said, uh, you know, funding, right? They they funded foreign nations, they influenced um, foreign policy by inve- embedding themselves in these vari- various um, government positions. And uh, I'm actually going to get a bunch of this uh, info that, that we're going to talk about here uh, from Murray Roth, but... Murray Rothbard's book, um, Wall Street, Banks, and Foreign Policy, the second edition. Um, oh my God! You know how happy that makes me. <laughs> I mean, you sent this to me. It's, it's actually a really good read. I was, yeah, I was very uh, fast.
1: Rothbard, Rothbard writes. Rothbard writes a great book on um, on this, and I really, I'm, I, I, have not read any of Rothbard's like humongous, like seven hundred page books, um, like his manifestos about libertarianism mm-hmm. and stuff, right but I have read his pamphlet. Like this is more of like a pamphlet. his like yeah. hundred page books. Yeah. It was know, Obviously it's... they're easy to read. Yeah. But they're all really interesting. And like the, the, the best thing about Rothbard, the way he writes is that he writes with like a really big, I love people with access to grind. And yeah. Yeah. He's he very name na- He's like, a name. He's a name. He likes mm-hmm. to name names. So yeah. he won't just be like the capitalist took over. Or the communists took over and had to be like, this
2: capitalist. It'll be took like this <laughs> person
1: who was related by this person by this by by marriage, right. and mm-hmm. this person who was best friend with him back when they were lawyers conspired on this date on this. Like that's why I like that's what yep. I enjoy about that type of history. Um, but yeah, go go on because he does he does write yeah. like a lot about kind of the collusion uh, between really the the it's called Wall Street. Banking, Wall Street, and foreign policy, mm-hmm. um, or Wall Street banking and foreign policy—I'm mixing the name up, but whatever. Right. You type that in Murray Rothbard, the correct title, and it's a free PDF that you'll find online because the book was um, because the Mises Institute puts most of their books up for free. Mm-hmm. But they, um, yeah, it's a, it's just a it's about 120 pages, and basically it's just all about like the col- <laughs> the collusion of banking, Wall Street, the collu- basically like the incestuous relationship between. Um, Wall Street and the State Department, and how, like, Wall Street just implants people into high positions of power in government to sway policy. Right. And it's always just like completely Machiavellian and 100% related to business. Like, it's right. just like, hey, let's put in a guy who's going to influence a president to go to war for this country, or let's put right. in people who are going to influence the Monroe doctrine and try to mm-hmm. kick the British out of the Western hemisphere, because why the hell aren't we, why aren't those markets open to us? Like that's in our hemisphere. So it's like, I mean the, the American banker magazine, American banker magazine, one of these historic banking magazines had like this, this op-ed and I don't, I should have brought this to this podcast, but it had an op-ed Britain, like 1880, it was all about just having an aggressive foreign policy on uh, in Latin America and how they mm-hmm. had to kick out, like dictating foreign policy terms to the president of the United States about right. how they need to fucking kick the British out. They need to kick, you know, they need to be the dominant power in the Western Hemisphere. Right. We're wasting good opportunities. Like it's, it's um, it's really, it's uh, it's it's really interesting that it was just so blatant. Um, yeah. Now you see those kind of op eds in those banking magazines, but they're all they're always kind of you Know they're not going to be that blatant brazen, but yeah, um, and and, you know, and we've talked about all, all of nowadays.
2: Everything we're about to talk about, we've we've covered on the show in its own topic, but we never explored, you know, in, in any great detail. We still won't today, but in any great detail, like how the banks influence these things. Usually, we we talk about the policy or the politics, or you know, um. Or, or the geopolitical conditions that brought people to war. But this is kind of an important bit, right? So I want to start in the, uh, in the 1890s. Um, and You kind of uh, uh, let the cat out of the bag here a little bit, Henry. But the Morgans were basically embedded really deeply with uh, President Grover Cleveland's cabinet. Um, I'll name a few names here because I got them from Rothbard. Thank you, Rothbard. Um, so Richard Olney, uh, he served as uh, Cleveland's Secretary of State and only was a lawyer for Boston financial interests who was closely tied to the Morgans. Uh, specifically, only was on the board of the Morgan run Boston and Maine Railroad Company. Uh, later on, he helped Morgan uh, organize the General Electric Company because he had the capacity to do that in his position. So, GE, Morgan. Uh, a little bit more uh, Cleveland's first Secretary of War was William C. Endico, uh, and he married into the wealthy Peabody family, and uh, Endico's wife, who was a Peabody, um, her uncle, here's where Rothbard says, this guy's wife's uncle's sister's brother. Anyway, Endico's wife's uncle, George Peabody, he established a banking firm that included J.P. Morgan's father as the senior partner, and Peabody had been the best man at J.P. Morgan's wedding. So talk about palin around, right? Um, so the Secretary of Navy was the leading New York City financier, uh, William C. Whitney, uh, who was a close friend and top political advisor of Cleveland's. And Whitney was closely allied with the Morgans in running the New York's Central Railroad, which we already talked about there. so was a old guy, Secretary of the Navy. Um, Cleveland's second Secretary of War, Daniel S. La- Lamont, 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 something like that, uh, previously was an employee and a protege of William C. Whitney, the last guy that we just talked about, the, the Secretary of the Navy from before. And all of these Morgan people influenced U- U.S. foreign policy to change from non-intervention to a program of economic and, and political expansion abroad, specifically by pushing the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, I got a quote for you from Rothbard. Uh, The major focus of aggressive expansion in the 1890s was Latin America, and the principal enemy to be dislodged was Great Britain, which had dominated foreign investments in that vast region. In a notable series of articles in 1894's Banker's Magazine, this is the one you were talking about, Henry, uh, they set the agenda for the remainder of the decade. Its conclusion... If we could wrest the South American markets from Germany and England and permanently hold them, this would indeed be a conquest worth perhaps a heavy sacrifice. Their quote from that from that magazine. Um, so in a nutshell, these guys were, were set on manipulating foreign markets and even entire countries in the pursuit of more market share, basically. And, and they did so by embedding themselves in the highest levels of government um, and they were able to make a really big impact by putting these policies in place so you know you know your stuff Henry that's exactly what he was talking about <laughs> um, well, yeah well I'm, I
1: I got this from the exact same um same book that you got it from so it's <laughs> we're not, just reading
2: the same shit <laughs> we're just reading the
1: same thing but yeah it's crazy but I mean I mean it's still pretty I mean every the 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 top there is a um Obviously, there's there's a revolving door between, you know, between uh, high-powered financial executives and high-powered, you know, uh, financial regulators. So, right. or people in power uh, who are, you know, they have a history and in, in uh, as banking executives or 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 uh, in financial institutions. So, I mean, it's just it's a practice that's still. It's still uh practice. It's still practice today.
2: Right. In some ways it makes sense because like, like I wouldn't want fucking Marjorie Taylor Green being a financial regulator. What the fuck does she know about it? Right. So, you know, you want somebody who knows their shit, but at the same time, there's like this, you know, conflict of interest, you know, having them run themselves basically. So, you know, there's that. All right, let's skip ahead a little bit. World War I, uh, you know, what, what I, I think what they learned about the, quote, sacrifice for processes for profits um, in the late 1800s that we just talked about, it, it basically became a template for pretty much every war after that. Um, in 1914, JP Morgan was in super bad financial shape. They, like we said before, they invested in railroads, which at the time were all in decline because government subsidies started drying up and... Yeah, in particular, the four hundred million dollar um Morgan run New Haven Railroad went bankrupt that year. Um, but soon after World War One became an opportunity for JP Morgan. They quickly secured a bunch of contracts to be the fiscal agent for the British and French governments, as well as the Bank of England. And they also became the monopoly underwriter for US war bonds at this time. And they were heavily influenced in financing uh, American munitions and other, uh, you know, exporting war material to Britain and France, to the point where um, JP Morgan became the central authority organizing and channeling all war purchases for both of those allied nations for Britain and France. Um, Some interesting facts that came out of this, the war material exports skyrocketed, of course, iron and steel exports quintupled from 1914 to 1917 and their profit rates increased from 7.4% to 28.7% in that same period, crazy, crazy growth, right? Five times more, more exports. And I can't even do math at the top of my head, a crazy increase in profit rates, uh, which is, I mean, fantastic for them, but you know, not so much for the people who have to fight the wars. Um, here's an interesting one. Explosive exports went up by 10 times. In just 1915 alone, just by itself. And, you know, after everything was counted up, JP Morgan negotiated more than $3 billion of contracts to Britain and France. And keep in mind, that's then money. That's 1915 money. You know what I mean? I have no idea what that money is today, but it's a lot. It's a lot of money. Shit ton of money. I got another quote for you. Uh, There was one hitch. It became imperative that the Allies win the war. It is not surprising, therefore, that from the beginning of the great conflict, J.P. Morgan and his associates did everything they possibly could to push the supposedly neutral United States into the war on the side of England and France. As Morgan himself put it, we agreed that that we should do all that was lawfully in our power to help the Allies win the war as soon as possible. And why would they push the U.S. into war? I mean, this is this is, wasn't an altruistic reason. They were, they didn't honestly they didn't give a shit about whether or not France and Britain won or Germany won. They saw the potential profit off of it, and they saw that just by controlling this that they could make a shit ton of money. So we were neutral, and I'm not going to say that the banks are the only reason why we decided to get into the war. That's that's you know we did a whole thing on World War One, <laughs> you know, but. is an element of that that you can that you can use for context
1: well you know when it comes to like why we get into war there's like this combination so i'm not i need to write this down and really think about it because i i know why i know the reason why and it's a lot of people just kind of articulate it poorly and i don't want to be among them but there's always a financial motive. And I think the financial motive really is kind of what spearheads it. Mm-hmm. But then there comes the justification. And, and to justify the, the mm-hmm. financial motive, it has right. to be about spreading democracy. Which and right. which politics in of it, Woodrow Wilson's mm-hmm. case was, you know, he probably really believed that. Like I think a lot of these these people who are, you know, foreign interventionists who are really into that. If you speak to a lot of them, they really do believe it. Like, they really do believe that American hegemony is it makes the world a better place. Um, if it wasn't for us spreading our institutions or uh, outward, then these countries would go to war with each other, and, you know, they would it would just be absolute chaos. So what we're doing is good. And I think that what really happens is that I, you can't, you can't be like, oh, okay, so we got into this war, and a hundred thousand Americans died in about nine months. Because I mean, World War One was just absolutely horrible for everyone. Mm-hmm. But in, you know, just in the context of the, of the of the American soldiers that died, man, something like a hundred thousand soldiers died in around nine months or so. Just horrible, yeah. horrible fighting, Hor- horrible, fighting, and, and um, um, and. I mean, how do you kind of justify that to yourself? Well, we'll spur the greater good, um, you know, we're, you know, right. these people die. They're
2: definitely because, not gonna so. say it was because we made and a shit to of money. You have to
1: sell, <laughs> it is not, and I and I don't even think it's kind of like a, a justification that you're making to, you know, to to the public. I think it's a justification that you have to make to yourself. Yeah. Like, you have to really believe that stuff, mm-hmm. because if you don't, then your conscience is, is obviously.
2: Unless you know, you're a fucking to, maniac, you know. <laughs>
1: Unless you are a maniac, like there yeah. are people who are maniacs who are just like I love war, but I think you really do have to sell yourself. You need to you kind of sell yourself on these, um, to to take the money and to profit off the war. You do have to sell yourself, sell yourself on that this is a good thing in the long run.
2: And if uh, I make some money is, on it, uh, awesome. Is worth
1: it. <laughs> yeah. And if I and if some people make some money on it. I mean, that's just, you know, that's, that's, that's great. Just proves how industrious that we are. But I know i am still been working on articulating this. And yeah, I'm sure I, think, I think you're onto something
0: for sure. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I'd like to call redacted history. I believe that all history no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me, And get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
2: You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. For sure. well, yeah,
1: um, World War One is not the only one. I'm, there's nope. obviously more wars, right?
2: Uh, and, and I won't cover everything, but I'll, I'll I'll touch on World War II shortly. Here, um, the U.S. enters World War II. and I think this is edged along in much of the same way as World War One, except you know this time the Rockefellers are involved as well. Of course, though, all of this is connected because David Rockefeller was the head of Chase Manhattan Bank, which eventually would merge with J.P. Morgan later on. So it's kind of like all the same thing, anyway. Um, during the 1930s, the Rockefellers were pushing hard for war against Japan, who they saw as competing with them for oil and rubber resources in Southeast Asia, and they were also ruining their plans of a mass, like, quote, China market for petroleum products, so they didn't like that so much. They're, they're really pushing for war in uh, against Japan. On the other hand, uh, the Rockefellers were pretty non-interventionist um, in terms of Europe, where they had... Some pretty close ties with uh, the German firms like IG Farben and co. And had not so many close relationships with Britain and France. The Morgans on the other side, though, they were very committed to the ties that they had set up with Britain and France from World War One, and, of course, all the money that they made in that, you know, uh, negotiation. So the Morgans were pushing for war with Germany again. Uh, here's a quote from Rothbard that I think really punches it. World War II might therefore be considered from one point of view as a coalition war. The Morgans got their war in Europe and the Rockefellers got theirs in Asia. So basically rather than like them fighting amongst themselves and saying, Oh, we should go to war here. We should go to war there. They just joined forces and be like, fuck it. Let's just go to war with everyone. You know? Um, and of course, oversimplification. there's many, many reasons why the U S got involved, but based on a lot of things that we've been saying here, and how influential these um, financial institutions were in the government and in policymaking is not hard to kind of follow that thread, you know, and follow the money behind the money motivations, as you say, Henry, behind some of these things. So there's that. Uh, I'll do some, I'll fly, I'm totally flying through context here because honestly, we can probably spend an entire episode just talking about either of the world wars and how the banks were involved. But um, here's some more quick facts about JP Morgan's involvement and some other foreign policy stuff uh, to help bring us back to today. Um, Thanks to some lobbying from our good friend Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller, Jimmy Carter was convinced to let the Shah of Iran into the U.S. to flee the political unrest led by the Ayatollah Khomeini, which, of course, as you know, was probably set up by us. And also because he was seeking medical treatment for lymphoma. And this led to the hostage crisis in Iran, um, which is just a small but noteworthy part of why our relationship with Iran is so tense today. And of course, the Morgans were involved there. Uh, When Truman uh, entered into the Korean War, he created the Office of Defense Mobilization to run the domestic economy during the war. Uh, And the first director of the uh, uh, defense mobilization office, uh, was general electric company, uh, president. His name was Charles E Wilson or electric Charlie. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, that's a Morgan controlled company, general electric it was set up by them. Uh, and he served as the board of, of a board member of the Morgan's, uh, guaranteed trust company. And so, you know, he was also running the defense mobilization under Truman, you know? So, yeah. And, and I can go on and on and on about so many different places. I mean, we can talk about, uh, uh the involvement in, in, you know, the uh, Iraq wars very recently and how, you know, uh, oil, uh, uh revenues were, were greatly impacted, um, by financial decisions by some of these large companies. Um, but you know, we we like to talk shit about like our interventions in, you know, the the recent uh, uh wars for oil in the Middle East as like a strictly George Bush issue, you know. But like a lot of the setup for you know going to war and, and, and intervening um in in foreign countries for, for resources and for profits was set up way before People like George Bush were even born, you know, like this is this is stuff going way, way back to even as far back as as you pointed out the um, the Civil War. You know, banks have been bankrolling wars for a really long time.
1: It goes way it goes back a lot further than uh, American history, too. Yep. So, Danny, I think this actually segues really into um, something that I've been I've been kind of preparing for a future episode really well and that is and i already told you but i wanted to do an episode on u.s entry into world war ii okay and um u.s entry into world war ii i kind of wanted to talk about really kind of like the 19 1940 and 1941 and a lot of the pretexts that basically not only why did why did pearl harbor happen and then why did germany declare war on on the united states but also the campaign in America that was going on mm-hmm. um, to invoke things like lend uh, because I think it ties into the subject really well. Yeah, and um, I've been thinking about this for for a while. So, um, do you want to just maybe we...
2: leave it here and then you know to be continued? Well, well, <laughs> this is kind of
1: yeah. I don't wouldn't say this is like part two of it, but. Right. I think there'd be a really this this would be a really good topic to follow up on on uh, on this um, U.S. entry into World War II and really kind of um, um, there's a, a journalist named Michael Tracy uh, who, who re- recently wrote a really long article called uh, Debunking the Fairy" something called uh, something the fairy tale version of world the fairy tale version of World War II is being used to sell the war in Ukraine. I think that's what it was called, but basically it just goes into a lot of the interest. The U.S. had and and backing, um, you know, backing uh, the United, uh, the British, uh, before there was you know any inkling or no no, anything known about the Holocaust or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about that. Um, We are. I'm not sure when this episode is going to be released. This may be Fourth of July is obviously coming up. Uh, Schedule is unclear at the moment, but. We will get back to our normal schedule very soon. Um, now we're dealing with this, with the holiday, with 4th of July. Um, we also are dealing with life things, but uh, we will get back to our normal schedule shortly. Until then, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. You can join our Patreon. Join our Patreon to join our super cool Slack channel and get exclusive, exclusive content. And um, is there anything else that we're supposed to mention?
0: No,
2: <laughs> but
1: okay, good one. All right, everyone. Well, enjoy your day. We'll see you next week. Peace. See ya.